Amato's fifth quarter is partnered with the Inner Sanctum. The Inner Sanctum, founded in 2020, is the new ball game in sports journalism, which aims to take you behind the closed doors of sporting clubs around the country in an effort to tell the stories of those on the field. Visit the Inner Sanctum at www.theinnersanctum.com.au as well as following them on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn. The Inner Sanctum, unique interviews, unique content for you. This is Travis Stokes. This is Greg Oddy. This is Carson Edwards. This is Brett Maher. This is Dale Pickett. This is Eugene Greenwich. This is Kevin Brooks. This is Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Dale McDonald. This is Sam Jacobs. This is Cal Brooks. This is Marcus Burris. This is Sean Redditch. This is Tony Spackleton. This is Andrew Blahoff. And you're listening to Amato's Fifth Quarter. gentlemen it's great to see you welcome to episode number 17 of Amato's fifth quarter I'm your host Dan and I want to say another big thank you to everybody who has engaged with my podcast and who has um, you know referred it to their friends and shared it and engaged with my social media platforms I really appreciate all the support and if you're new this is your first episode welcome to Amato's fifth quarter on this podcast, I welcome high-profile sports talents from multiple coasts to come on and chat about their careers, the good times, the bad, the highs and lows and ups and downs. I've had some great guests on the show. If you go back into the archives, you'll have a have a look and, and see some great names, including Dustin Fletcher, Al Green, Eugene Galekovich, Tyson Edwards, and more. If that sounds good to you, then definitely subscribe. Hit me up on social media. I've got Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, And I upload all my episodes onto YouTube as well. So if it's easier to listen to it on YouTube 
And it would really mean the world to me if you could also share it and, and refer your friends to it. So as many people that can engage with A5Q as possible helps boost my visibility um, in the podcasting world. And of course, the more uh, the, or the bigger my audience base, the more likely it's going to be for me to be able to get more guests to come on the show and have a chat. So that's what I'm trying to achieve here. So as much people that know about A5Q as possible is fantastic. But for tonight, we're going to get into this episode because my special guest for episode number 17 is former Perth Wildcat and Australian Boomer, Andrew Vlahov. Now, AV has a wealth of knowledge, not just in the sporting world, but in the business world um, as well. He is a, a very, very intelligent businessman, leads by example, and I feel listening to him speak, he's hard when he needs to be, but I also think he'd be very, very fair as well. Not only did he play for the Perth Wildcats, but he was also part owner as well. So when he was playing uh, with with his teammates, basically, he also paid their salaries, which is really interesting and something we do go into here tonight. But on the court specifically, he played 349 games in the NBL from 1991 to 2002, scoring 5,665 points, 3,068 rebounds, and 1,252 assists. He is a three-time NBL champion in 1991, 1995, and 2000. He was the grand final MVP in 1995 in that famous Perth Wildcats championship against the North Melbourne Giants. He is a two-time Perth Wildcat MVP. He is a two-time All-NBL first-teamer in 1992 and 1995. He was the NBL Rookie of the Year in 1991. He was also the captain of the Perth Wildcats from 1993 to 2002 when he took that job as the captain. He was only 23 years of age, which is very, very impressive and and is just speaks volumes of his leadership from a very young age. He was in the NBL 20th anniversary team. He was also a part of four Australian Boomers Olympic squads. That's four Olympic Games. That's a 12-year span where he was good enough to be in the first team of the Australian squad, which is remarkable. And of course, his number 21 jersey is retired by the Perth Wildcats and it hangs from the rafters at all Perth Wildcat home games. So to sit down and have a chat with, with AV was fantastic. As I said, great player on the court, off the court, sensational businessman, and I think you're going to see that. So let's get into this episode from the Perth Wildcats and the Australian Boomers. It's Andrew Blahol. That's come out of the ground. Listen to the hiss, listen to the growl. Perth Wildcats are on the prowl. Can you feel Opportunity here for Blahol. Can he make a move? From one end to the other, Vlahov easily chops off the pass. In fact, he's made the three-pointer. He's made the three-pointer before the buzzer. Sensational play by Andrew Vlahov. Welcome back to Amato's fifth quarter and today we've got one of the legends of Australian basketball and one of the very best players to play for the Perth Wildcats. Andrew Vlahov, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. A pleasure. Looking forward to it. Of course, you retired in 2002. You had part ownership of the club. What what have you been up to in the last sort of 10 to 15 years since you, you last played basketball for the Wildcats? Well, we don't have that much time, though. But I guess the easiest way to explain it is I work for myself, do a range of things. Uh, the easiest way to explain it would be a strategic consultant. And I help people uh, and businesses 
either improve or innovate or connect with markets that they're looking to to connect to. Um, Apart from that, I'm the chairman of the Olympic Team Appeal Committee over here in Western Australia. I'm the chairman of an uh, emerging uh, Aboriginal sports club called Binar Sports and coach my kids every now and again. And my passion is, is youth and uh, education. So it allows me to do a few things that, um, that I really am uh, interested in. And so you're still sort of dipping your feet into the sporting world? A little bit, but um, more from a social impact point of view and the utilisation of sport for, um, let's call it a higher purpose, which is, I think, education and health in this country. Yeah, fantastic. It's, it's good to hear you doing good things in, in that era. So taking you back to the beginning, you grew up in a sporting family. Your mother, Eva, was a long jumper. Your father was a discus thrower. And they both represented Australia at the Commonwealth Games. And I believe your sister also played basketball. Was basketball always the main sport for you growing up? No, it wasn't. Um, As you said, both my parents were track and field uh, athletes. My eldest sister actually represented Australia in in heptathlon uh, as a junior. And then the next sister downplayed netball for Australia, then basketball uh, for Australia. But my first love actually was soccer. Um, Played... Uh, with the local police and citizens youth club and then picked up footy and cricket um, and basketball was sort of the fourth cab off the rank to fill in the time when I wasn't doing those things. So soccer gave way pretty quickly to footy and cricket and then basketball uh, became my prime focus sort of when I was 14, 15 um, and it started, you know, I guess moving into um, upper levels. So what made you sort of go with basketball? I wanted to represent Australia, and even though I was a half-decent footy player, I there was no international representation for footy, and I wanted to be an Olympian. Um, I wanted to represent my country uh, and wear the green and gold, so that was a burning ambition from um, my early teens, and I made it a goal, and luckily uh, got there, uh, first with the Australian junior team, and then in my first Olympics in uh, 1988. Yeah, and you went on to play in four Olympic Games. But the so you went to college at Stanford and you studied economics, coached by yep. Mike Montgomery, who is, of course, one of the great collegiate coaches of all time, also went to the Golden State Warriors in the NBA for a couple of years. What was that experience like in Stanford and, and what are some of the major learning points from that time in your life? And, and also, what was your relationship like with, with Mike Montgomery? Um. Well, I'll start with, you know, it was a fantastic four years of my life as a young fella going across and an Australian. Um, uh, I was one of the early ones, myself and Luke were probably two of the trailblazers. Uh, Luke went on to the University of New Mexico, uh, which I wanted to go to originally, but my dad wouldn't let me because um, he didn't think academically it was um, up to standard enough. So I was lucky enough to um, get some interest from Stanford. And then once, once I visited the campus and, the, and met the guys on the team there, I knew that was the place for me. And, and Mike Montgomery had flown all the way out to Perth. He was one of only three coaches to do that, to visit me uh, and my parents in my home. So um, from a very early onset, I guess, I had a good relationship and a special relationship with Mike, and that continues to this day. Um, but playing in that college system, you know, going over there as a 19-year-old, I think it was a, it was a fantastic grounding uh, in terms of development because the application to um, the fundamentals of the game was, was at a different level to, than it was in Australia at the time. 
um, you know, fast forward, Christ, 30 years and, um, you know, the next stars program in the NBL and what we're doing in the development of the AIS and so many superstars through Australian basketball, Bogut, Mills, Ingalls, etc. Um, you know, Australia's got, its ro- got it right with junior development. But at that time, um, I felt that the better pathway for me was uh, in the States and the opportunity to get an education from Stanford um, was just too good to pass up. I mean, back then, it's interesting, and I spoke to Brett Maher a couple of weeks ago. It seems like back then, it was a bigger, not a bigger achievement, but it was more an ambition for an Australian player like yourself to actually go on and play internationally and represent Australia at Olympic Games and World Championships more so than playing in the NBA. I think that differs um, on an individual case-by-case basis. Some people um, feel like the you know, the, the glamorous nature of the NBA is, is super attractive. But for me personally, playing for Australia was a dream and a, and a personal goal that I wanted to achieve. Um, and again, lucky enough to do that. I got a little bit of a taste of the NBA, trialled with the Lakers in 1991. Um, and to me, I mean, to be frank, it was it was great. Um, and, and maybe I should have kept on going with that. But I felt like I was very lucky to have a career in basketball and, you know, my time at the Wildcats and under the, I guess, the mentorship of uh, Warren Jones and Kerry Stokes here at the Perth Wildcats. I don't think I could have got any better than that. And so I have no regrets around that. Um, And, you know, let's be honest, I probably would have been a very good orange peeler on an NBA. (laughs) Instead, I got to play. And, um, you know, I probably wouldn't have done well sitting on my sitting on my backside, um, it would have frustrated me too much. So I'm, I'm, yeah, very comfortable with the choices I made. But, you know, today's game is, again, somewhat different. I still think that young fellas here that are coming through the Aussie program understand what it means to play for Australia and, and the boomers' culture is strong. Um, and and I think, you know, there's there'd be certainly... Um, goals set in both those arenas, you know, to, to, to make an NBA roster, but also to, to wear the green and gold. I think you're uh, selling yourself a bit short there with the orange peeler comment, but um, no. Nah, that... well, I could have handed out the drinks as well. <laughs> multi-talented. Oh, that's good. But this time that you are in college and, and the, the, it coincides with your first time representing Australia, the 1988 Seoul Olympics where you were part of that Boomers team that finished fourth at just 19 years of age and still to this day, fourth spot is the equal highest position the Boomers have ever finished on an international stage, led by Adrian Hurley, who would later coach you at the Wildcats. There was Mark Bradkey, you had Luke Longley, Phil Smythe, Andrew Gaze, Daryl the Iceman Pierce. What are some of your memories from that experience? Smythe gives him the ball this time. The screen comes from Bradkey to get rid of Epi. But again, they take time off the clock. They need points again. Into the hands of Blahoff. Get it to a shooter. That's Gaze with the ball now. Villa Camper pushed away. Three-point bomb from Andrew Gates. The Spanish to take a two-pointer. They fire up for three. Australia's ball. It's Australia's ball. They get it to Smythe. Four seconds left. They've got a one. Carroll out of the backcourt. Into Drakey. And Australia's one into the semifinals. It's 77-74 Australia. That was the Aussie girls in the background. They're in the semifinals. The men are in the semifinals. What a great two days this has been for Australian basketball. Oh, they're just fabulous memories. I mean... Again, when you're a young buck, um, 
you just go there with your eyes wide open and soaking everything up. So watching what the older guys do, you know, the Ray Borners, the Larrys, the Phils of the world, we were, you know, we were educated, I think, in the, in the <laughs> call it the team hierarchy around um, what, a, what a rookie is uh, supposed to do and not supposed to do, I could, uh, it's fair to say. And those are great days, you know, you learned your place respectfully, but when it came to competing on the court, the gloves came off and it was some ferocious training sessions, I can recall at the AIS when, you know, myself and Mark and Luke were sort of breaking our way into the team and it became apparent that there was, you know, a decent future uh, in us three. And I think um, full credit to Adrian Hurley to, to have the courage to select us um, and and ultimately, I think it, it ended up being a, a good choice, you know. I think, um, you know, Mark and Luke are obviously gone on to do amazing things and um, we feel like that grounding in that year, um, you know, we were all at the AIS together in 87 um, and that and that was, you know, the start of something really, really good um, and some great friendships too. What does it mean to you personally to wear the green and gold jumper and represent your country? It was a personal ambition from a very young age. And so when that actually happened, there was a certainly a, a great deal of fulfilment. But I think it's the highest honour you can have as a player, uh, irrespective of whatever your professional career is. Um, you might be getting paid five bucks to play. You might be getting paid five million a game. Um, to me, uh, the Olympics and the green and gold transcends the financial uh component of it and so I like I hold that as you know my greatest achievement for sure very well answered two or three years later you then returned to Perth to play for the Wildcats how did that come about well I'd been coming back in my off seasons to play for the Perth Redbacks uh, in the local SBL competition here and putting up a few points on the board um Luke and I were on that team and we won back-to-back championships in 89 and 90 and during 90 I think or you know certainly the late 80s and into 90 the game really took off um prime time television massive crowds across the country incredible rivalry between you know the Wildcats and the Bullets and, you know, all the Wildcats and just about any team, it seems. 36ers was a good rivalry as well. The Sixers, you know, I think for my first four or five years of playing the Sixers, the margin wasn't greater than three points in any one game. And that's some, you know, there's an amazing statistic in there somewhere. Um, I can't exactly recall what it is, but they were always fabulous battles with high-caliber players. So that 1990 season when I was here, I was um, still, you know, still had couple more semesters to go in university because I had to stop out a, a semester for the Olympics and uh, the world champs in 1990. So I was returning back to Stanford to complete my degree in my first two off-seasons of the NBL. And that was a, a non-negotiable for me um, as part of, you know, negotiating with NBL teams. Um, and I was lucky enough that there was a fair bit of interest and um, funny enough, the best offer I had came from the Canberra Cannons. Um, and then that was followed by the North Melbourne Giants and the Sydney Kings. So Perth was running four um, at the time that I was you know, heading towards the decision deadline. And I wasn't really um, you know, taking... Um, it wasn't a hard deadline, but ultimately I wanted to make a decision so that it was out of my way. Um, 
And and I recall one night when I was back at Stanford and I just got off the phone to Bruce Palmer and and um, was about, you know, I'd, I'd all but said, Bruce, I'm going to come and play in North Melbourne, but I didn't. Um, and the very next day, the I got a call from uh, Ricky Drace and he said, um, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm just studying here. And he goes, yeah, I know, I'm sitting in the car outside your house. And I went, what? And uh, so I went out and saw Ricky, and he had with him the Wildcats general manager. And um, so Ricky and I, um, and this bloke, we went out to dinner, and then the, the, the general manager went back to his hotel, and, and Ricky and I stayed and, and had a really deep chat. And he said, look, you need to understand that, that, that the Wildcats would really like you to come back and play. And I said, look, I'd really like that too, but currently it's a, it's a pretty clear financial argument. And he said, well, why don't you just, let this bloke have a chat with tomorrow and then, you know, we'll talk again. Well, I didn't see Ricky Grace again and the bloke came back and, and he said, um, he was very forthright. He said, I've been instructed not to go. I'm not allowed to go back to Australia until I sign you. And um, <laughs> so we spent a couple more days figuring out what to do and um, we arrived at a, at a suitable conclusion. Um, and uh, I rang... Um, Kerry and uh, and said, "Yep, I'm I'm all in." And he was he was pretty happy. And at that time, he was taking over the team from Bob Williams. Um, and so yeah, that's how the that's how I ended up at the Cats. Wow, that's that's a great story. So, do you think if it, if it weren't for for Ricky Grace, you may not have been a Wildcat? No, not necessarily. I think the like the bloke Ricky was there to um, make sure I took the call and um, you know offer the the inside of the team because I didn't know Ricky from a bar of soap um, but I'd obviously watched him win the 1990 championship and um, as a player you know point guard of that caliber was always going to be something special and I still think he's you know one of the greatest to play in the NBL and he's up there in that greatest of all time from a Wildcats point of view in that conversation with Bryce so yeah I was I was lucky Ricky wasn't the determining factor the factor that I was that the Wildcats came back and uh, essentially put something on, on, on the table that still did not beat the Canberra Cannons offer, but was close enough where the, the ability to play at home with my family and, you know, being a West Australian through and through, that, that became the, the greatest pulling power. Um, and uh, I just remarked to someone the other day that, you know, what does the Wildcats mean to me? I was there at the very first game. Um, I watched Mike Ellis play in that game and, and, and always wanted to play for that team. So that was it back ended when up they becoming were the, an easy decision. That, their first game in 1982 when they were still the West State Wildcats. That's correct. That's So you were at their very first game? Yes, I was. I was sitting in the corner on the ground. I was 13 years old. Um, I'd just been to McDonald's because I know I had a, a Coke <laughs> in my hand. And um, I was there watching the very first game and, and I saw, you know, the next level up from what I'd seen in the local league. And, and I guess that also, that had a had, a, had, a, had some sort of impact in my, in my brain somewhere along the line, I'm sure. That's awesome. So you are 100% a Wildcat original. 100%, true and true. Hey, that's awesome. And that, that first year could not have gone any better for you because the Wildcats had just come off a championship in 1990 uh, they had Murray Arnold take over as coach, who, who he'd just taken over from Cal Bruton, and I've I've had Cal Bruton on the show, and um, it wasn't the prettiest departing, but nevertheless, you jump on board, you win the Rookie of the Year, also Australian International Player of the Year award, along with of course that 1991 championship against the Eastside Spectres. Can you sum up that first season in the NBL for us? 
the Wildcats poised to become only the third team in NBL history to win back-to-back -back championships. Margin is 10. Larkins. Pinder's back there. Well done, Tony Pinder. He's got an eye on the clock. He's got a smile on the face. The arms are in the air. The Wildcats are champions. A wonderful addition to the Hungry Jacks National Basketball season, Andrew Vlahoff. Yeah, for sure. But you missed out that, that, that Stanford actually won the NIT that year in Madison Square Garden uh, in March, uh, right before I signed in April, uh, or started playing in April, I should say. So 91 was a very, very special year. Um, yeah, coming into the team, obviously, I knew a few of the guys and um, you sort of, you know, no doubt targeted as a rookie and I'd been, I'd, I'd played a, a little bit against some of the other guys, but I'd never gone head to head with James or at that time Tiny was on the team and Pete Hansen was on the team. Um, so practicing against those guys was just so much fun. I mean, it was a bloodbath. Um, and Murray was a, was a very, um, defensive orientated coach. So the physicality of our practices, um, you know, went up another notch from college. And, and again, from it was, you know, equivalent to, to me, the sort of level that we, that I experienced at the Boomers, where, you know, as a 19 year old, 21, 22 year old kid or whatever, you, you, you get a, an awakening and, um, learning how to play against, um, you know, pros. Um, that first year was a fabulous apprenticeship for me. When you win an NBL championship, is it because you were still a bit young at the time? Is it more relief? Do you think to yourself, "Oh, this is going to happen every year"? What can you explain that emotion of of actually getting to the top so early in your career? Well, the emotion of it was, you know, the the team that we had was a pretty impressive team. I think we ended up going twenty two and four on the season, and um, you know, defending the championship was a was was for everybody else except me was, was something that they were doing whereas I was playing in my first season. Um, so it was it was a phenomenal experience and you know halfway through I ended up you know two weeks off I went and, and had a run around with the LA Lakers in 91. Um, so coming back and seeing seeing what we were doing and the, the, the competitiveness of which the winner championship I think is um, what what differentiates teams and clubs from um, from each other and you know it's it's fair to say that I think the Wildcats have um, certainly since my day um, of starting there the competitiveness that was instilled in us through Kerry Stokes um, still lives to this day and um, and that's that expectation of success um, the the pathway to success where there are no shortcuts allowed um, is important as a as an individual, and it's a great also grounding in life for for being you know attentive to detail, understanding what how teams work, um, and the importance of chemistry um, in 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 a unit. Um, so yeah, all those things that were it was like I said, it was a fabulous fabulous apprenticeship year for me in, in 1991. It couldn't have gone any better. What do you think makes the Perth Wildcats such an amazing organisation? Because to me personally, and obviously I'm an outsider looking in, it seems like the Wildcats do it better than any other club. I mean, 35 consecutive final series, 10 championships, but it seems like 
when you put on that Perth Wildcat jumper, it's almost like an honour. And, you know, you respect the club, you respect the history and the players that have come before you. I think you, the Perth Wildcats do that better than any other club in the NBL in terms of respecting the history and being proud and having that responsibility when you put on that jumper. Can you sort of describe that for us? That's, you know, probably a very good description. And, and there would be some kind of analogy to wearing the green and gold in that sort of space. But when, when new players come to the club, you know, one, I think one thing that we figured out uh, very early on, in fact, it was after the 92 season, we recruited an American that was a mistake. And we corrected that mistake at the end of the year. But... One, one thing that we learned was the importance of that chemistry and the ability to be competitively on the same page for the majority of the game, but particularly coming down the stretch when, when all the marbles are up for grabs. And I think that's that sort of cauldron of fire that um, can only be formed in practice sessions and through the, the sheer competitive will of the individuals on the floor through the guidance of a good coach. Um, and I was, you know, I was lucky to have very good coaches, not only in college, but all through the Wildcats. And so they understood the competitive nature of uh, people. And I think the other, the important aspect of being able to manage, you know, egos ultimately is, is also a skill that a coach must have in the modern day environment. And, you know, for, for the Wildcats to have a, have a 35 year track record with, you know, 10 championships, there's no equal. And, and in terms of, you know, where we sit as a club, we're very, very proud of that tradition. So, you know, everyone is always like, oh, shit, hopefully this is not the year that we don't make the playoffs. But the reality is that will, that day will come. It's statistically, you know, uh, unlikely to, to go through, you know, the next 20 years without without missing a playoff. It is inevitable. It, it is inevitable. And that's what I said, it's sort of like, that's fine, but let's try and buck the trend every single year. And everyone, you know, historically, it seems to write off uh, us, and that's fine. And, you know, there's there's usually, you know, like Sydney in the 90s, they tried to put together these super teams on paper through a year of, of you know, because this guy's a great player and this guy's a great player and that guy's a great player. But to me, that's a mistake. And I think the current Sydney ownership now understand that. You know, they've imported now... <laughs> A lot of Wildcat um, knowledge, uh, including Luke Longley, uh, in their in their quest to to become a you know a a benchmark gold standard team. But the Cats have a have a long history. It's a proud history. There's you know things that they do with players and and the induction process of understanding when you 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 are participating in a club that is the next level and the expectation of performance is next level. And if you can't perform well, you will find yourself without a contract. <laughs> Hi, everyone. I'm very sorry to take a break in this chat with former Perth Wildcat and Australian boomer Andrew Vlahov, but I just want to remind everybody that last episode, I got to sit down and have a chat with former North Melbourne and Geelong ruckman Hamish McIntosh, who has a great story. He's a journeyman, went through a lot of setbacks in his career, a lot of injuries, but he still was able to play over 120 games at the top level. Here's a little preview to get you in the mood. Definitely very frustrating. Um, yeah, I found it yeah very difficult, mate. At the um, yeah at the time, so I guess that year was my toughest year in football. I was going to talk about tough years, so it was just yeah physically I was 
obviously having my battles. And then, um, yeah, mate, obviously mentally I found it really difficult as well. Going to a new club and not being able to, um, not being able to play at all, um, barely going out the training track and just being out in front of all those superstars, in front of like Enright, um, Johnson, Selwood, um, you know, Chapman, all these stars at the footy club. To not even play a game my first year there, they recruited me as a ruckman. Um, and we lost the first we lost the prelim final by a goal. And we had Blitz out Rucken who played about three games of football. Um, yeah, look, I was just yeah, mentally mate, I was shot that year. I was just it was incredibly difficult, mate. And uh, that was a year of football I would rather forget. But yeah, just physically and mentally I was I was cooked and didn't have a great year in either in either aspect, mate. And I could have handled myself so much better mentally, but I didn't. Hamish McIntosh is the epitome of resilience, dedication and hard work. But for now, let's get back to AV. I just want to quickly talk about the 1992 Olympic Games, which is famously known when people think of 92 Olympics, they straight away think of the USA Dream Team. Michael Jordan, Larry Bird, Charles Barkley, Magic Johnson, just the greatest Olympic squad of all time. Do you ever look back at that time and think, gee, I I wish we could have played against them? Summer 1992, Barcelona was all set ready to welcome thousands of athletes in the world's media, ready for the biggest event it had ever hosted, ready for three weeks that would ultimately change the city forever. Yep, Barcelona was ready for its very first Olympic Games. But was it ready for the Dream Team? The Dream Team, the finest collection of basketball players ever assembled, superstars, and superheroes playing together on one team. When Team USA decided to get the NBA professionals involved, it was Magic Johnson. I couldn't pass up that opportunity. Uh, It was the greatest moment of my life. Who sensationally came out of retirement to answer the call. And Boston Celtics legend Larry Bird got on board first. Other big names were quick to follow. Scottie Pippen, one of the toughest defenders in the game. John the pasty gangster Stockton, widely regarded as one of the best point guards of all time. The 14-time NBA All-Star Carl Mailman Malone. New York Knicks legend Patrick the Warrior Ewing, who was coming off one of the best seasons of his career. David the Admiral Roberts, who had played as an amateur in the 1988 Olympics. And the prolific Charles the Round Mound of Rebound Barkley an 11-time NBA All-Star. But it was one player, the most successful and gifted of all, who was one of the last to sign on. Michael Air Jordan, at the summit of an extraordinary career. They were dubbed the Dream Team. The greatest collection of basketball talent ever assembled. And they were on a mission to return U.S. basketball back to its once golden past. But as the Olympics began, it was obvious that they were more than just America's team. As the whole world embraced these superstars and were awed by their spectacular show. Oh, for sure. I mean, that would have been just phenomenal to step on the same court as those guys. Um, You know, my idols, um, my, my original idol was Julius Irving and then Larry Bird and Magic. And then I got to play against Magic, I think, in 94 or 5. Um, here in Australia, so it was it was phenomenal to watch those guys on the floor and see the 
again, when you talk about what's next level, um, that team was next next level. And I don't think there's ever been a team ever assembled like it. Yeah, I would agree with that. Like, that, that squad, their worst player was still an absolute NBA superstar. Yeah. And, you know, that, like I said, they... They transcended the game. Like they can do things that no one else has been able to do since. Um, with the with the IQ, uh, basketball IQ on that floor, um, the sheer talent. Uh, you know, the gold medal was a bit of a foregone conclusion. So everyone would sort of like just be happy to playing for for the silver. Um, yeah, but yeah. That, that wouldn't have Hope stopped the Aussies having a red hot dip. And if, had we got the chance, you know, no doubt we would have given it a good crack. Australia has such a great culture like that. I mean, even with the Socceroos, it's always the fighting spirit. We, we know that we're not always going to be the favourites necessarily, but it's the fighting spirit, and that's definitely relevant still today with the Boomers. Absolutely. I think that's one of the great things about the Australian culture is that never-say-die attitude, that we would, we'll never take a backward step, and sure, we'll lose some games, but we're going we're gonna to lose it by giving our best effort um, on the day and may the best man win on the day and occasionally that that's not us uh, and I think every player that wears the green and gold can live with that provided he can look down the down the bench or in the locker room and see his teammates um, spent um, and have given everything uh, to the to the cause and like I said you know just like life there's winning and losing um, You've got to be able to cop them and move on. But, you know, in recent years, Australia has firmed with its talent development and it's, and that, you know, it, it has not lost that, you know, that culture of, of strength in, in a tight unit, particularly defensively. And I think that's what gets overlooked a lot is uh, our attention to detail in the defensive system. Um, and that's what puts us, you know, up there with uh, and competitive with the world's best teams. Two years later at the Wildcats when you take over the captaincy from Mike Ellis at just 23 years of age, was that a lot of pressure for you? And have you always just been a natural-born leader? Well, probably other people can answer that, but I'd say yes, I have. Um, I've captained every team I've ever been on. The taking over was a lot of pressure because on that team was, you know, Grace, Crawford, Fisher. I was the second youngest guy on the team. Yeah, um, that's crazy. But I think um, what Kerry and Warren, um, when they pulled me aside and, and said that, and particularly Warren Jones, who, rest in peace, he was such a good mentor as a, as a guy. And he, you know, Warren Jones, for those of you who don't know, he was the guy that was the, call it the CEO of the America's Cup win in 1983 when, when, Australia uh, beat America, um, so he was at the he was the executive in that space, and and he was the, our deputy chairman and Kerry's right hand man here. But I learned a great deal from him, and he pulled me into his office, and because um, at 23 you could probably understand that I was quite happy to um, have a cold beer and get amongst it at a pub every now and again and enjoy the, the company of my NBL teammates and opponents, and 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 back in those days, you know lot of mates on other teams and so we'd always sort of have a beer after game and socialise but Warren pulled me into his office and he said uh, we're going to uh, make a change to the captaincy uh, Mike's stepping down we're appointing you but here are the rules and he gave me a piece of paper it was literally this is how you 
this is what you need to do to carry yourself and these are the things that we expect and that that really was a turning point in my life when I went okay well I probably need to be less of a lad now and more of a leader because this is for reals and um, I took the job very seriously but I was fortunate enough to have you know great teammates so you know motivation at training was never an issue competitive at training was never an issue and we had the IQ in that group and you know, it was it was phenomenal. Uh, and then bringing Adrian into the program was just, you know, just such a great thing for me because he'd been my Olympic coach in 88 and 92 and um, I still think he's, you know, the smartest coach to ever coach in the NBL. Him and Gorgian are, to me, the you know, the two shining lights in terms of, you know, their basketball IQ and, and Trevor's certainly now getting up there with the, the championships he's, he's racking up. But I had the, the joy of playing under... Uh, Adrian, Adrian understood me. Understood my sort of approach to the game from a from a cerebral point of view, as well as you know what we had to do tactically. So we we were a good fit, and uh, I really enjoyed those years with Adrian. Referee says, "Fellas, take a break. It's half time." Hey everyone, I just want to say a very big thank you to those who have engaged with A5Q. I really do appreciate all the support. I trust you're enjoying delving into all things Australian sport and hopefully you will continue to stick around. It would be a massive help if you could please do me a solid, subscribe to the podcast and hit me up with a rating and a review. Gaining as much positive feedback as possible helps boost my visibility and it allows the podcast to be seen by other Australian sports tragics out there. Now enough of that, let's get back into it because the second half of A5Q is about to get underway. Because that first season, where you, your first season as captain, was a magnificent season. You finished top with just the five losses. You reached the grand final series, but you lose 2-1 to the Tigers. Particularly that last game, 102 to 104. Can you give us your recollections of that time? And, and, and yeah. the difference between... I mean, obviously there is a difference, but the, the, the difference in contrast between winning a championship and losing one. Tigers cannot afford to foul. They've just got to run away from the Wildcats. Don't touch a thing, yells out, guys. Vlahov for two. Oh. And the Tigers, for the first time in history, have won the NBL title. Well, super effort from the Melbourne Tigers. Great scenes of jubilation. Great presence of mind from Vlahov last time when he got that ball, Stephen. Didn't take the three-pointer new. Three points weren't enough. He wanted the foul. And Bradkey was smart enough to back. There you can see the Gaze family and the Gaze family in Perth enjoying the first ever. Is that emotion from Lindsay? Look at the Gaze family. Lindsay and Andrew. Andrew just tears streaming down the face. Something they've wanted so badly for so long. It was. I can still say that it's still disappointing to the to to lose a championship and that no one can tell you that it, they've gotten over it. I think it's it's always one that you you sort of look back on. That particular series was a. Fabulous series. There was, you know, Days, Copeland, uh, Bragge. That combination was phenomenal. Dave Simmons, Ben Simmons' father, was was in that unit as well. So they had uh, a phenomenal uh, group of players. And I recall actually in game one in Melbourne, you know, Sibley was on four fouls, Simmons was on four fouls, and Bragge was on four fouls. And this is when five fouls were were out, but none of them fouled out. And um, the um, 
it was quite ironic. Um, but we lost that game. We came back to uh, level the series in Perth. Um, and then in the in the in game three, Leonard Copeland had got Ricky into some foul trouble, and he had a bit of a, a tear in the third. I think he had like sixteen in the third quarter or something like that. Uh, and so we were having a lot of trouble containing him. Um, but it came down to the wire, and um, we had a play drawn up. We were, I think, two. No, we were three down at the time, and. Um, what I was supposed to come up because Ricky had fouled out. What I was on the on the thing, he he and Fish sort of collide accidentally, and what I tripped on his foot, stumbles, the ball comes off his fingers, and I was on the weak side. I managed to save it just before it goes into the back court, and then only had you know a few seconds. So Mark Bracky was on me. I, I took a three from miles out. It, it nearly went in, but it rimmed in and rimmed out. Dave gets the rebound, we foul him, um, he goes down and makes one of two and then we score a, a two at the end, but ultimately we lose, I think, by two in the final scoreline. But the, the theatre of that was significant. It was the first championship for Andrew and Lindsay, so it was very emotional for the Tigers. We were pissed off, no doubt, because we felt like we, we had the, you know, we had a, a great opportunity that year. But, you know, like I said, it's the highs and the lows of sport that makes it so impressive so it it sort of refocused us um to to hit the the track harder um and it took us another year after that because our 94 season was a little bit disjointed i I had ankle surgery so i missed the first half of the season nearly i think i missed 11 or 12 games at the start of 94 but we came back with 95 uh team we'd we'd secured uh, Aaron Traher. Um, we had CJ Bruton in '94, uh, but he only stayed one year. And then we got we got um, Aaron Traher and Martin Catalini into the group in '95, and um, and that was a, again a very very special year um, that um, that I can recall as one of my favourites. You know, we we win the preseason, we win the regular season, we win the championship, we go and play against the Houston Rockets in London in the McDonald's Open. And then we lose that game, predominantly because we were hungover still from the championship <laughs> and flying across the country. And then you played Real um, Madrid, didn't you? And we then we gave uh, we gave it to Real Madrid and beat them. So it put you know put us on the map, I think, um, not only for the NBL but certainly for the Perth Wildcats as a as a premier club in the Southern Hemisphere that um, that can hold its own. Yeah, because I've, I've been really keen to, to talk about this 95 season because that is one, I still think, one of the most fun teams to watch. Just Even just put on YouTube every now and then and watch the Wildcats 95 with yourself and Traher and James Crawford, Martin Catalini, Ricky Gray, Scott Fisher. And you, and you said then that is one of the your, your favourite memories at the Perth Wildcats. What do you think it was that made that club so good? And, and I've had Daryl McDonald on the show and he spoke about it from the receiving end of it. It's very, very rare in the NBL when you look at the history books for a club to lose game one of the series. And particularly, you guys lost it in Perth and then you yep. still turn it around and win. How, how did you do that after you know, a disappointing first game in that series? 108 to 88, we're counting down. Three, two, here's Rudy. The Wildcats are champions. The Wildcats have won their third championship in the NBL. Champions for 1995. Let the crowd tell the story. 
Along with the rings this year, the Perth Wildcats get a traveling bag with a ticket in it to London. Next, the captain of the Perth Wildcats had a tremendous final series and an inspirational season, Andrew Vaughan. Firstly, I'd just like to thank uh, the North Melbourne Giants for providing such a, a memorable experience for us. I'd also like to thank Mitsubishi for making this league possible and also our major sponsor, Coca-Cola, for without those sorts of companies, uh, we wouldn't exist. I'd also like to thank our owner, Kerry Stokes, who's done a tremendous job for us this year. <clears throat> I'd like to thank all our supporters, all the people here tonight. You guys are excellent. But most of all, most of all, I'd like to thank the guys standing over there, my teammates. Thank you. Well, you probably need to go back a little bit because you'll see in the record books, um, whilst we won the pre-season, our start to the season was terrible. Um, and I think we were at best 500. And this happened in the Canberra Cannons home gym that coldest place on earth to play basketball but we just lost to the cannons and um and we had you know this is the 95 team and we called a team meeting and i asked adrian to leave the room and to a man we went around the table we stood there we were freezing um we were icing and down after the game but we were freezing but we went around the room and we said it stops here um the accountability goes up uh, a million percent and from that locker room, we felt like we had expunged whatever demons were haunting us. Um, and we got back to playing some of the best basketball I think we've played. I think we went on an 11-game winning streak. And we got a swagger happening that, uh, and, a, and a cohesiveness that was really, really special. You know, everyone then understood and accepted their roles. And I think that wasn't the case. Uh, in the in the teething process, you know, leading up to that game in Canberra. But after that, we were rolling. And then I could feel it. I knew we were going to win. It was just a question of how much. But that, that grand final series, that, that game one loss, was the wake-up call that I remember us getting to go. We were genuinely surprised to lose that game. And full credit to North Melbourne. They did a, you know, Brett Brown... Daryl McDonald, the Iceman was in that game. Um, Larry Sandstock was in that game. They, it, it would be fair to say that we probably did not acquit ourselves to, to the highest possible standing in that game. There was probably a, a case of we're at home, we should win this. We, we, you know, we're an informed team. We'd just beaten, I think, the Tigers in the semis through a, a cracker of a series. We should win this, and we didn't. And it, it really hit home and hit hard. That fear of not winning it, given how far we'd come, was, was really what drove game two. And I know that, you know, I think we were down maybe six or eight at half time in Melbourne with the North Melbourne Championship balloons in the rafter. And that was one of the motivating factors when we looked up and, and we went, well, they think they're going to win this and celebrate. Nah, not today. And, we turned it around in that second half and we had the win and then we came back to Perth 
And we did the, did one thing that we'd never done previously, and I'm not even sure we've done since, is Adrian took us into a hotel. Um, he didn't want anyone to go home. He wanted to keep the feeling of that unit. Um, so we checked into a hotel and um, under strict instructions not to not to, you know, um, do anything but focus on the, the next game. So, you know, we'd flown back on the Saturday and we were playing on the Sunday afternoon. And then we get to the arena on Sunday and, you know, the rest is history. I think we came out with a 23-4 to 4 lead and we were on fire. Crawford was was vintage Crawford. Um, it looked like he'd wound back the clock 10 years. Traher was on fire, Grace was on fire, you know, everyone seemed to be hitting shots and poor old North Melbourne couldn't do a thing right. And so yeah, we had a we had a fabulous run in that game and it was over by quarter time. That's a, a pretty cool insight. What does it mean to you to be a Larry Sengstock medalist for the best across the, the three grand final games? Yeah, it was it was great, and obviously having known Larry, and he was you know my I was his understudy in those eighty seven, eighty eight years with the Boomers. It was great, and and you know he's a he's one of the guys again. You, you look back through time, and him, Phil, Ray, uh, Wayne Carroll, those guys that were um, stalwarts of the Australian program back in the day that we learned from, and then you know our group was able to pass it on to that next group. It's those guys that, you know, help create that culture. And, and that still, again, lives today. Um, so, yeah, yeah, getting the Larry Sinstock medal was special. And it's probably, you know, I was probably, I don't know, I'd say I was probably peaking. I was 26. Kerry had blocked me from taking any European and um, international offers. I had a great contract to go and play in Japan, which he said no to. And then uh, after we won the 95 championship, he, he said you can go and have a bit of a run around in Europe if you want. And uh, so I did. I, I took whatever deal came came across the uh, the desk the next day and I ended up playing um, a few months in Belgium after after we um, beat Real Madrid in, in London. How was that experience playing in Belgium? And what's sort of the differences between basketball there and, and the NBL? It was fabulous. I mean, I didn't know what to expect. I'd always wanted to experience the European play. I had a chance to actually play... Uh, with Tony Kukoc in 1991 for um, Pop 84, it was called, in, in Croatia. But the, the club didn't release me to, to follow that. But when I went over to Belgium, I was, you know, I was the only non-American import that the club had ever had. And I was coming into a team that essentially was always middle of the rung. It was kind of like... You know, it was a small town, it was a small team, very passionate group. We had a tiny stadium, about 3,000 smoking Belgians. (laughs) Back then, you could still smoke and like, you know, you come to the game in the upper levels, you could hardly see the lights because there's so much cigarette smoke. But um, when you think about it now, that's a bit bit gross, isn't it? Yeah, and and aeroplanes are worse. But anyway, (laughs) I I was very lucky because I had... I must have, you know, hit a very good streak of uh, or vein of form because my first game I was up against two-time league MVP and so I held him to his worst score ever and had 25 and 10 and six assists or something like that myself. I had a really, really good game in my first game and so I got some tongue, tongues wagging in that space. And then a couple of games, you know, so we won that game and then we won a couple more and all of a sudden we were like, you know, three, three and one or something, and and 
the owner of the team, who was about as wealthy as Terry, came down to to watch me train. And then the coach, you know, told me, oh, that's the big boss. He's come down to, to talk to you after training or something. And I said, oh, yeah, no worries. Just to say hello and, and do whatever. So, and I, I kid you not, um, I could not have trained any better that day if I tried. Like, I dunked on our seven-footer. I must have hit 10 threes at practice. Uh, I had, you know, 50 during the scrimmage. It was ridiculous. I was playing out of my nut. It was hilarious. Like, literally, it was, if everything could go right in a training session for a person, that's what happened to me that day. Anyway, the, co- the owner takes myself and my fiancé to dinner. So there was a restaurant up at the... the um, uh, at the venue, and um, he, I'll, I'll never forget it, because he has his steak blue, which is, you know, one second on one side and two seconds on the other, and it's cooked. And so he ordered dinner for us, and he, he's eating this bleeding red steak. <laughs> my wife, my, she's my wife now, but my fiance was like, oh, right, we've we, we suffered through it. But he said, I want to um, I want to buy you out of your contract. I want to sign you for three years, and I want to double your, your contract here. And um, can you go and tell your club that that's what we want to do? And um, I was I was literally floored. I thought he was just coming down to say hello and meet the sort of you know freak Australian that's in town. And he said, I, I want to get all this done this week. Can you go and contact the club? And I, I don't know what to do because Kerry and, and Warren had released me on the basis that I'd return. And you know back then I think it's still the case you, you give up your FIBA license to um, to play. And so, so the Wildcats had to send my FIBA license to Europe to this little tiny club in town called Alst. So while I was playing, I was under their. Um, so to, to get to get me back to Perth, they would have to sign a release. And then the Wildcats had said to me, um, "Well, I rang, I rang Kerry and couldn't get hold of Kerry, but I rang Warren, and uh, I said, Warren, got a small problem.'" He said, "Oh yeah, what's that? What's happened? You okay? You know, you're not hurt, are you?" I said, "No, no, nothing like that." I said, "Mate, there's a bloke here who wants to buy me out of my Wildcats contract and sign me here." And uh, he laughed at me and hung up. So I rang back the next day and I said, "Warren, I'm pretty serious. You know, this is a lot of money." And he said, "Andrew, you gave me your word you'd come back. I expect you to honour that." And he said, "Anything to do with contracts and money?" Terry and I will sort that out when we when you get back. Wow. So, um, so as it turned out, as it turned out, I had to go back to the owner and say, "Look, I'm really sorry, but my club wants me back." And um, so it was a bit tough for a couple of weeks. Yeah, it was a bit tense. And then, unfortunately, I got some bad news about my father, who got ill, and um, his, his cancer had come back, and uh, he was having surgery like the next day. So I went to the Belgian club and I said, "Look, I'm really sorry. Um, I'm not. Re- I'm returning home and explain them what's happening with my my father." And the owner was very cool about it and he said, "I understand. If circumstances change, I want you to come back and um, and join us." And uh, well, I got back to Perth and you know my dad was quite crook. Um, and true to his word, Warren and Kerry sat down and said, okay, we don't want you to go again. Let's talk about a long-term deal. So I signed a, a seven-year guaranteed deal. Uh, no matter if I slipped over at home, 
or hurt myself playing, my contract was guaranteed for seven years. And that's the end of that story. I never left again. Last break, I promise. Three-quarter time here on A5Q and... Another guest I've got coming on the show in due time, it's Brian Curl, who, of course, is the inaugural NBL championship coach, won the first two championships in NBL history, 1979 and 1980, as well as in 1987 with the Brisbane Bullets. Here's a little snippet of it. I worked and worked and worked and worked on my fitness and my quickness and and things like that, getting up and down the court and just doing, you know, I was a role player. My role was to set screens and to rebound. Um, you know, uh, I got my most points when uh, when shooters like Eddie Palabinsis or Kenny Cole or Tony Barnett and uh, David Lindstrom, players like that, when they had a bad night and missed some shots and I got the rebound and put them back in. That's where I got my points from. There was no offence around me, but that, that was my role. I was prepared to play it and look where it got me. So, you know, I'm, I'm happy about that. So, uh, you know, it, it was just... It's incredible, you know, and I think too, you know, and I see kids, I coach kids with a hundred times more talent than what I've got, but they don't want to do the hard work, you know, to get there. They they think that it's just going to come to them and it's not going to come to you. You've got to get out there and work for it. That's that's the key factor to it. And, and I did that. I really did. Brian Curl has got another fantastic story and definitely one you're going to want to listen to. So stay tuned for that one. But for this moment right now, let's get back to former Perth Wildcat and Australian Boomers legend, Andrew Vlahov. Did that bother you? Like, was that something that caused you a lot of anger or, or do you ever regret that, that that decision? No, not at all. Quite the opposite. I mean, um, I think the, the most important thing that I was able to get back and uh, my dad only lasted about another 14 months, um, unfortunately. And um, I don't regret it at all because um, the Kerry and, and Warren were true to their word, um, like I was true to mine, and we were both happy with the outcome. And um, I kept in contact with those guys for a few years after they all retired, and I think one of them is now coaching the team. Uh, and then it's coached the team, and then it folded. But it was a it was an interesting sliding door in history I guess um, but yeah I, I have no regrets whatsoever and I've you know I've, as I said before I've been so lucky and privileged to be part of the Wildcats through my whole playing career and you mentioned your father doesn't matter how much money you're earning or, or who you're playing for family always comes before sport and, and work no matter what 100% your 2000 championship with the Wildcats under Alan Black defeated the Titans in two games and you you know, that was a great team in itself. You still had Ricky Grace there. What are your memories from that 2000 season and the series? The first team in NBL history to win four championships. The Perth Wildcats, Stuart Byers can't finish it off. But the champions for 2000 in the NBL Mitsubishi Challenge are the Perth Wildcats. Andrew Lahoff has been outstanding this year for the Wildcats. Let's get a work with the owner. Thank you. Andrew, number three. How does this one feel in comparison? Now your owner, your captain, you've got it all here. What's been the big turnaround and how does this feel to you? Derek, it is unbelievable. By far, the most significant victory I've ever had in basketball, sport, my life. 
It's unbelievable. You've done a lot of things. You've changed the court. You've changed your support. You've changed your junior development program. What's been your motivation here? Well, all along, look at us saying you want to bring the game back to the people. The people have come to us. Have a look around you. Man, we are back. Congratulations, Andrew. Enjoy. <laughs> Nothing but stress. Um, Luke and I had taken over the team in 1999, in August of 99. And um, so that was our first season as owners. So I had the ridiculous role of being the captain, um, the part-time CEO, and um, and a team owner. Um, Talk about having so your hands So it was quite full. an interesting conversation. Uh, when we signed the deal, I went and called a meeting with Alan Um and I said to him, mate, nothing changes when my when I've got the jersey on. You know, I'm still going to run through that wall if you tell me to run through it. Um, I'm the I'm no different as a player. Um, you have my full commitment on that. And I said, but after um, when I'm put my suit on, um, the dynamics of our relationship need to go to a different sort of set of parameters and. He was pretty good with that, to be honest. Um, it probably frustrated him a little bit, I guess, at the start, but he never showed it. Um, and, you know, Alan was a was an exceptionally good tactical coach. Um, but he had, you know, he had um, had my support um, in, in what he was trying to do as a team, and I'd never tried to interfere with that uh, in any way, shape or form as an owner. Yeah, because you, obviously, as we've mentioned, you and Luke Longley become part owners of the club. Can you explain the dynamics of owning a club when you're still playing? And I'm really interested <laughs> in the in the side of you're not only playing with these guys, but you're also paying their salaries. What's, is that, is that, or, is it awkward? Yeah. Is it? I think if I, um, it, it, it may have been in, in my, in my, um, approach to it, like I said, I was able to compartmentalise my roles, whether it was as the captain, as the owner, as the CEO, as the team, you know, you know, as a teammate. Um, and I think ultimately, I would hope um, that I think players in that realm respected me for the, the difficulty of being put in that position, but I was never, I never abused that position um, in any way, shape, or form, and I, I think I credited myself as a teammate um, in the right way um, to be, you know, um, to be, you know, an important part or an integral part of of still winning a, you know, a championship that year. So uh, I felt like I I did a reasonable job of that. Um, I don't know; others may differ. I haven't heard to the contrary, but. Maybe, um, you know, maybe one day someone will say, oh, the bastard cut me, something like that. But I, I, I approached everything on a very objective basis, uh, first and foremost, with the club's success at its heart. So, um, yeah, everything I did and all the decisions I made, um, I made with the coaches uh, in terms of personnel. And then, you know, on the broader club things that we were trying to transform ourselves into a community orientated club that that spent a lot of time with people and um, particularly school kids um, you know that was a that was a very important part for me to to instill and embed our brand in the community and and I'm proud to say that that is um, still happens today and has gone to the next level so it's fabulous well answered 
when did you know it was time to retire? Because after the 2000 championship, I think you played for another one or two years and then and then you finished up. When does a professional athlete know his time is up? Well, I, I sort of made the, um, made the assumption, I guess, that um, from my point of view, um, I never wanted to be the guy that was at the end of the bench and was hanging on because he had to hang on. Um, what cut my career short was unfortunately my left ankle, which I damaged over time a number of times. So, you know, if I wasn't going to be a starter and if I didn't think I was going to be um, competitively be able to, you know, compete at the right level uh, and contribute, then I would know my time is up. Um, and they ultimately, you know, obviously are uh, uh, are not mutually exclusive because you can't run around on one leg. My last six weeks of that 2002 season, I did not train once. I got two needles a week um, and I was ingesting a ridiculous amount of painkillers on game day um, just to keep playing. And so after that, um, you know, I wasn't, Oh, there's no way that you can continue like that. And I knew that even surgery wouldn't change that, given the, the nature of the injury. Um, so it was easy. It was time. Um, didn't go out on a, you know, we got we got eliminated, I think, by maybe Illawarra, I think it was, in 2002. Um, and um, that was my last game. And, you know, I didn't, you know, it's a bit hard to have your own testimonial game when you own the club. So I just quietly went off into the distance and, you know, announced my retirement, but that was it. I um, wanted to get on with the next phase of my life, which was, you know, paying attention to building the club and being the best executive that I could be. Yeah, fair call. And just as we are about to close up now, I would like to talk about, again, the Boomers. You again played in 96 and 2000 Olympic Games. You finished fourth both occasions. Looking back at your international career, how disappointed are you to not have won a medal? So Sabonis really hurt us in 96. He had a game, you know, just a, what a talented individual he is for the, for the player is. And, you know, we would have really done with uh, Luke didn't play in that 96 uh, campaign, um, but uh, played in 2000, but was injured in the crossover game. So we missed him in the... Uh, at the end of the tournament as well in 2000. So that was a little bit disappointing. We felt like we were a definite medal contention. Um, and especially the the France game in Sydney, when to win that, we were into the gold medal game. Um, that's, I think, the game that Luke hurt his knee in the, in the first half. Um, we, we did not have our best game. And it's a disappointment, I guess, to know that, you know, on the day when we... Uh, when we could have, you know, created history, we weren't able to. Um, does it, you know, does it disappoint me? Yeah, of course it does. Um, but, you know, in the big scheme of things, is it the end of the world? Nah. Um, so probably being able to put it into perspective as you get older um, is helpful, but it certainly burned. You know, I mean, our first fourth finish in 1988, I mean, we lost to the US in the in the bronze medal game, but, you know, we were already bloody happy that we were fourth. <laughs> so 96 was tough. Um, you know, we felt like the Lithos were 
you know, it was the first time that they were able to play. Uh, well, they they were playing as that unit again, which is basically the ex-Soviet team from previous years, and they were they were formidable. You know, um, bit like us, they knew the game. They were old. They were savvy. We had our work cut out for us. We just couldn't stop Sabonis. He was the difference that that game. And no matter what Hoagie tried to do, that you know, he, he seemed to have an answer for us. Um, you know, we sag off. He hits a three. We get up. He's He's driving and dishing and doing all sorts of stuff. So, you know, it was a tough, it was tough, but like I said, I wouldn't trade it out. Um, would have loved to have got a piece of silverware, but hopefully that'll come uh, with our boys in Tokyo. Definitely hoping so. I think it's their probably biggest opportunity to win one in Tokyo. Yeah, no question. And, you know, I thought that our world championship team that we put on the floor um, in China uh, 2019, last yeah. year or the year before, yeah, it was, you know, again, a really disappointing small passage of play, a little bit like Rio, um, where we were un, unfairly dealt by by the by the basketball gods. But I think the what I love to see and read is the the resilience that that has got within our group and the full commitment of the NBA guys, Patty and Joe and. Um, and now, you know, Delhi. hopefully Ben, um, Delhi, all these guys that have, you know, done the yards that I'm hoping that, that they'll get their just rewards. And it won't be just a reward for them. It'll be a reward for all of us uh, that have played for the Boomers, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I agree with that, 100%. And just as we are about to close up now, I've got three last questions for you. And I always ask my guests this in one sentence. Throughout your entire career, international, domestic, who is the best player you ever played with and why? Who's the best player you ever played against and why? And lastly, who is the best coach you ever played under and why? Okay. Best guy I ever played with would be Luke Longley. We developed a sixth sense on the court between each other from the juniors on and felt like that even existed in our last campaign together in Sydney. Best player to ever play against. That's a difficult one. I'd have to say the guy that I just knew that we couldn't stop was Shaquille O'Neal. Like when we played against him in 94 in Toronto, the Worlds, it was ridiculous. It was, he could just do whatever he liked and um, we had no answer. You know, the hacker Shaq was the only, uh, our only option. So he stands out um, as someone unbelievable, but probably the guy that I've, felt like my, I respected the most as a basketball competitor was Magic Johnson. He was just, <laughs> uh, I, I thought, I knew the game a little bit, but he's just a PhD and, and I was a primary school student. Um, Good analogy. In the game. And uh, and he, he was just phenomenal. So yeah, that was, you know, he was the toughest guy I ever played against. And Adrian Hurley gets that uh, award, you know, closely followed by Mike Montgomery, but um, Adrian and I felt like had a had a great respect for each other, and he allowed me to grow as a person and as a player, and mentored me through that process. So yeah, I really, really enjoyed playing under Adrian. Andrew Vlahov, it's been awesome to chat. I really do appreciate your time coming on the podcast, and I wish you all the best in everything you're doing now out of basketball. Thank you very much for coming on the show today. A pleasure. Have a good one. Here it is. It's all over. 
And that's a wrap. Thank you to everyone for tuning into A5Q. Don't forget to spread the word, subscribe, leave a rating. Until next time, old sport.